As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and thank you for joining us this week. I'm Ali Maxwell and I've got the usual gang with me. That's Michael Cox, that's Mark Kerry and Liam Tharm from The Athletic. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. Important topic today. This will be Jurgen Klopp's last season as Liverpool manager and we've regularly talked about Manchester City's evolutions under Pep Guardiola, sort of regular micro-tweaks, but rarely about Klopp's Liverpool in the same way. Both the style of play and the key names seemed consistent for a very long time. However, this season, they are top of the Premier League, just past the halfway stage, and they've taken on a new skin in terms of the way this team looks. So, with the Klopp news breaking late last week, this is a great time for this topic. How similar is this Liverpool team to peak era Liverpool under Klopp? We are going to detail those changes and discuss the direction of travel for Liverpool after Klopp's departure. Michael, big news in the Premier League landscape. Yeah, it is really big news. And I think for a lot of neutrals, probably quite sad in a way. I mean, I think one thing that Klopp has given, not just to the Premier League, but to European football is a bit of variety. You know, without him being in the Premier League, Manchester City would have won six league titles on the bounce without much of a challenge at all. And Liverpool have only won one title. They might have had more in another era, I think, because they're such a good team. But even when they've slightly come up short... They've done so by a point. So it's really gone to the final day. And for me, someone who, you know, I just want a good title race. I don't really care who's in it or who wins it. It's just been really fun having him in the Premier League and with the Bundesliga as well. I mean, Dortmund's uh, won the two before this run of, of 11 in a row for Bayern. So it might have been 13 in a row for Bayern if it wasn't for Klopp. So, yeah, regardless of what you think of him, what you think of Liverpool, he's he's brought excitement. I think they've arguably been the most consistent team in that time as well across both league and cup competitions. You look at their 90 plus point seasons where they came second, multiple Champions League finals, obviously a trophy, uh, FA Cup finals, League Cup finals. City haven't been quite as consistent. I know they've also now got a Champions League trophy, but Liverpool never really had those moments of sort of crushing and burning as, as bad as City did, even if they've obviously got more trophies in a row. So no one wants to come second with a load of points, but they're, you know, 
continuation, the ridiculous home run they had of going unbeaten for so long. They've been excellent to watch and, and arguably pioneers to a degree in terms of a lot of the pressing and counter-pressing stuff in terms of at least embedding that into the modern style. If Pep was all about the passing to be very reductionist with Liverpool, yeah, it's now completely commonplace, which wasn't the case of when Klopp first came in. It's been such a long managerial spell by modern standards and we like to divvy these long reigns up into different eras. So when it comes to Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool... How many eras have there been, broadly, if we use the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 naming convention, Michael? Well, I'd say in terms of a finished side, for me, this is just 2.0. Right. I mean, he was there for a long time before they really got to a high level in terms of winning the Champions League and winning the Premier League. But it just it felt like a constant process of evolution. I didn't ever think, oh, yeah, this is what Liverpool are going to be like. They're quite settled. There was always a couple of question marks. I mean, the goalkeeper being the obvious one uh, when it was Mignolet and Carrius, you just knew that wasn't the kind of the finished article. And you could gradually see what was building. I think from quite an early stage, it was going to be 4-3-3. It was going to be that very specific structure of the front players. It was just gradually getting everyone into place. And it kind of, I mean, they used to say back in the day, they used to say that really good sides are built from the defence. Mm. I think this side is interesting because it was built without the ball in terms of the gegen pressing, but it was built from the attack. I mean, Firmino, Mane and Salah, was that was there at a fairly early stage. And once that was there, I think you were fairly confident they were going to be a good side. The only other potential argument for a, what would have been a 2.0, and this could maybe be the 3.0 iteration, was when... Liverpool had won the league and brought in uh, Thiago Alcantara, and that was actually ended up that actually ended up being quite a difficult season for Liverpool for reasons that has been widely discussed, including injuries. But it was that Liverpool's midfield was previously functional. Essentially, they were trying to serve the the fullbacks and the uh, the forward line, and essentially wanted a bit more control in the middle. And Alcantara was one of the best players in the world at doing that ended up actually slowing the pace down at times and teams sitting in a lower block actually frustrated Liverpool and that was another reason for them not being quite successful in that season. But that would probably be the only other potential evolution, but that was still within the structure of a 4-3-3. So yeah, I get Michael's point. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point to be honest because that did feel like a, a deliberate change in approach, but he just hasn't played enough, has he? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's always played about half the games or less. So yeah, I mean, that season was obviously a massive off-season. Then they returned the 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 subsequent campaign with pretty much the same kind of side as when they won the league. I mean, a couple of different players, but very much the same feeling to me. We'll call that Klopp's Liverpool 1.5. Yeah. The Thiago experiment. Um, between 2017-18 and 2021-22, Liverpool made three Champions League finals, three Premier League seasons with 92 points or more, with one title, an FA Cup and a League Cup in there as well. Klopp's Liverpool 1.0, as we're calling it. And when we talk about them tactically, from what Michael said, it feels like we have to start from the front, which isn't always the case for a tactical overview of a, a football team. But Mane, Salah, Firmino really set the tone. Yeah, I mean, they were as much, I think, when we look back now, what they did off the ball in terms of in terms of their pressing. I think we saw that, you know, with, with the departure of Mane, where they couldn't necessarily press as intensely from the front and trying to find different solutions for that. The fact that they could all combine in different ways to score, that there are periods where 
they lost both Mane and Salah to, to AFCON and adapted within that. And Klopp spoke sort of at the start of this month and at the end of December saying similar that, look, this is a situation that Liverpool had been in before in terms of people asking, how are you going to deal with that Salah when he's scoring all of your goals? So they've constantly been a good balance of interchangeable, I think, but also having real clear super strengths of we've got complementary forwards of, you know, that season where Salah and Son shared the golden boot for being such good inverted wingers to be able to cut inside, but can also, you know, run in behind. They can drop deeper to combine. Um, is that the same season in which Roberto Firmino did not score a league goal at home in a title-winning campaign, which was mentioned on the pod the other day. Yeah, which is just crazy because you think that, that should be a real stick to beat him with. But when you look at the work you do off the ball in terms of linking play was was absolutely excellent. And I'd give a nod here to, to their set piece as well, being, I, th- I think, from memory, the best set piece team in the league when they did win it. Just consistently so good of having Trent Alexander-Arnold to cross, you know, or deliver outswingers for Virgil van Dijk and, and Matip was, a, yeah, a real, real good, sometimes straightforward way of, of scoring goals. He did actually score in the final home game of that season. So oh. we have to say he didn't score until the title was sealed. And right. You can get around it by being clever. <laughs> Nicely done. I, I must admit quickly, that was referenced on our sort of strikers analysis podcast from a few weeks ago. Since we recorded that podcast, I've, I've been thinking about that pod and strikers broadly every single day. I, <laughs> I really think that's one of the more interesting ones that we've done because it is you cannot get away from discourse and discussion about strikers. And even in the EFL leagues that I cover very closely when we're doing transfer analysis, I'm I'm repeatedly now trying to make the point that we're talking about strikers wrong. And, and what you guys brought up on that on that episode was a, a key part of that. And Bobby Firmino is a you know a huge sort of central figure in that whole discussion as well. I think, yeah, it's so contextually dependent as well, because if you were to use that stat as a stick to, to beat Firmino with, then you think that he wasn't very prolific. And it maybe be the same argument that we've been speaking about with Gabriel Jesus, which was the, the crux of the, the podcast that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. But I think it was because, and it is maybe because Saka, Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli aren't potentially as goal-hungry as Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah were uh, in that sort of iteration. So I looked into that, that... Across the 2018, 19, and 19, 20 season in the Premier League, Mane and Salah accounted for 47% of Liverpool's goal share. So when you've got the players who are going to be coming in from wide and Firmino and others are serving them, then you don't need Firmino to score. If you can chip in and do all the things in and out of possession that we know that he did so, so well, then it's less of a problem. So it's so contextually dependent, so mm-hmm. part of the wider attacking unit rather than thinking of strikers in isolation and their, their contribution that way. I just had a quick look at the numbers as well. In terms of his assists, when you look at them per 90 across the Premier League, he had 50 altogether at a rate of almost one in four, which is pretty good for anyone really anywhere on the pitch. Often your most creative player might put up one in three, one in four is generally quite decent, let alone for a number nine. That's always been nice. And I think it's something we see with Klopp now, and we'll get onto this more when we discuss some of the, the newer ways that this newer version of Liverpool play. But he's always seemed really focused around not necessarily having like an end game or something where he's trying to play a certain style. It's how can I maximise the players that I've got? I can move them into different roles. I can interchange them positionally. He doesn't seem to be focused on saying, we want to play this perfect style this way and I'm going to fit the players to it. It feels quite balanced both ways. And I think that's a really nice approach to have. And in a athletic football tactics pod first, I'm going to bring up the word alchemy before Mark Mm. Carey. Because when we talk about Liverpool's midfield at that time, a collection of midfielders, Vinaldum, Henderson, Fabinho, Milner as well at times. Talk about alchemy, Mark. 
Yeah, the, the blend of Liverpool's midfield was, as I mentioned before, designed to help and serve the yeah the fullbacks because Liverpool's such good focus on, on their width and, of course, their forward line, as I say. So there wasn't as much need to, to chip in with goals or, or contribute in, in more of an attacking way like Liverpool's current iteration actually seemed to do. So I think it was more of a, a functional role. They were far more disciplined. And I think that with the, the leadership of Henderson, with Milner, with Wijnaldum to a certain extent as well, I thought that their ability to dictate the tempo was what was key there. And Fabinho being arguably in his peak years across the 18, 19 and 19, 20 season, so, so destructive. But I think when Liverpool needed to to go for it and be far more sort of transitional, then, then the midfield could help in that regard. But I think I've spoken about it on this podcast before about how good Wijnaldum was mm-hmm. at dictating the tempo and being so press resistant his ability to to be such a good kind of release valve for for pressure when it was getting a little bit too transitional and Liverpool just needed to calm it down. I think for all that Liverpool have been viewed as quite a transitional all-action side, there were a lot of periods in that title-winning season where they did in the best, it was a compliment to them in the best way possible, they'd made the game quite boring mm. in that they just slowed it down, they'd killed the game uh, after 60-70 you know, minutes. And they had that midfield ability to be able to just kind of dictate the tempo. So it's interesting to me that when we talk about midfielders that dictate the tempo, what springs to mind for me is a midfielder that's more of a Pirlo, Michael Carrick type, known for passing range, for example. But Liam and uh, Mark's just mentioned it, setting the tempo, particularly now where what a team does and individuals do out of possession is is as important as what they do in possession. There's also a meaning of that phrase which can relate to a player like Vinaldum, who wouldn't have been profiled as a deep-lying sprayer, shall we say. Yeah, it's that idea, I think, increasingly that there's different ways to control a game in different styles that, that players can do it with. And we're also seeing a balance now of, and I'm sure we'll get on to this, of you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold playing more centrally. is a player that is really good and really quite destructive, I think, with his passes at times. He can really pit like a defence, but probably doesn't add a lot of control because so much of what he does is kicking for distance and the sooner it goes up, the, the sooner it can come back. And you're obviously risking turnovers as well and trying to maximise 1v1. So that can be a little bit more risky. And there's a great way, I can't remember who left it in the comments of, of a piece that I wrote after uh, the Liverpool-Bournemouth game where someone was saying how Liverpool being been really efficient in their title winning season, which I thought was a great way to describe it, that there's probably a bit of retrofitting around you know, them being all action and smashing teams to bits. But yeah. they were in front at half-time in 24 of, of the 38 games uh, and went on to win 23 of them. So there were so many games where they scored early and then they could you know, take control of the game and basically make it boring. You could turn off at half-time and you wouldn't miss anything, which from Klopp's perspective is probably great to, to see out a game like that. And I think back to the win against Villa earlier this season at Anfield as being a great example of that. And sure, they've had to change and have different iterations since, but when you have those profiles of player that can help you control games and you score so early, then you become really, really hard to beat. The fullbacks, Michael Trent, Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson really felt like the era-defining fullbacks in the Premier League at least, but actually only for a couple of years, really, in, in the way that they played. Yeah, I think it's a funny situation with them because we're very accustomed to attack-minded fullbacks. That's not a, a recent innovation. But when you look at the other fullbacks who've won the Premier League over the last decade, you look at Mourinho's Chelsea, Azpilicueta and Ivanovic, defenders first and foremost, Leicester, Fuchs and Simpson, defenders first and foremost, City have either played you know, half-backs coming inside into midfield or now they're playing basically... Uh, four centre-backs at the back. So for them to consistently produce that number of assists, 
not just in relation to other fullbacks in the league, but in relation to the rest of the team. They were consistently the best two creative players. And I haven't ever seen another team whose best two playmakers or best two creators were the fullbacks. So I think they are quite special, actually, at a time when a lot of teams have moved away from using players like that. It's quite fitting as well, as we speak, that, um, and this is partly maybe because Alexander-Arnold's currently injured or coming back from an injury, but he and Andy Robertson are a joint top of the, the all-time assist list, I believe, for defenders. And you look at how they've sort of changed in that Robertson's that real sort of specialist of a crosser. And you've got the balance now with Alexander-Arnold, someone who is maybe a bit more of a generalist, can now do things in, in different ways, probably isn't providing as much of a final ball now and, and playing more inside and being a bit more pivotal to the build-up. But it's a really good indication of a team that can adapt and change over time, even with the players and sort of remodel um, and not be stuck to playing a certain way. And just the great idea of, you know, you do it for as many as you can uh, for as long as you can as well as you can and then it works until it doesn't and then you you change it I mean just going back to the, the two seasons that I referenced before 2018-19 and 19-20 season Alexander-Arnold had 25 assists and Robertson had 23 assists in that period and they were the top two of any player in the Premier League in that time so that's more than De Bruyne David Silva Salah Son, Eden Hazard, Christian Eriksen, all those. But, and granted, it's, I'm not looking at per 90 here, so I'm kind of fudging the stats to sort of serve this point. But it's still absolutely remarkable just how much that is the case, which speaks to, to Michael's point. And I think it's worth just absolutely emphasising just how much it was Liverpool's strength to have such creativity on either side. If you've got a, a key player or a key attacking threat, then you can potentially nullify them. In, in a certain way to try and stop them in their tracks. But the, the fact that Liverpool had threat on either side meant that it was really hard to stop them. OK, so that's what they were, what we're calling Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool 1.0. What about how they are now? Another excellent Liverpool team, but in a slightly different way. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So in something of a new skin... Liverpool are back at the top of the Premier League table. We're just over the halfway mark in the Premier League and Liverpool have a five-point gap as we record over Manchester City, who do have a game in hand at five points as well. Uh, away are Arsenal, albeit Liverpool and Arsenal have played the same amount of games. Off the back of a big win uh, last night against Chelsea, we've got tons to talk about when it comes to our table-topping Liverpool team. And I think we should start, as we did, reflecting on... Klopp's Liverpool 1.0 at the top of the pitch because this is an area where plenty has changed apart from Mohamed Salah or at least apart from his presence perhaps his role has changed a little Liam I mean yeah there was a period where Salah played number nine and and scored an awfully 
awfully large amount of goals. Uh, I got it as 12 goals and 6 assists from, from Transfer Marks in 2018-19. I can't really specifically remember why Flip ended up doing that. I don't mm. know if the others have, have more insight there, but it sort of fits similarly to what we've seen now with Son at Tottenham and probably Huang at Wolves as well, where you get these really good wide forwards that have actually got really good, you know, finishing instincts that can finish well off of both feet. Um, he's also really quick, so he can, you know, really dart away from players and, and get into positions where he's scoring tap-ins. A lot of the time, they'd be box crashing anyway when they'd attack from from the other side so it's not solely cut inside and score your iron robin type finishes from distance and I guess that adapts maybe as you get older as well and we've spoken about that with, with age and stuff before that you might lose a bit of your physicality and your intensity Salah also has really good availability he plays a lot of games so to be really intense all the time probably isn't practical to do it mm-hmm. over um, a full season and, and play internationally as well but I really like the set of forwards they've got now they're they're so all quite varied um, players that can play across you know the line in, in loads of different ways and, and Klopp just spoke about the difficulty really isn't anything individual but it's how you fit them it's again the Mark Carey alchemy hmm. of how you balance them all and there's a great example against Bournemouth where they weren't phenomenal in the first half and he switched them around at, at half time so he moved Dugo Jota from the nine to, to right wing and put Darwin Nunes from the left um, to, to the right and then put Luis Diaz um, onto the other side on the left and they clicked an awful lot better and went one that up from a, a Long ball, but then a good combination between mm. some of the forwards. Yeah, I want to get Michael's thoughts on on Darwin Nunes and his kind of best role down the centre and, and the left. But just on, on the Salah note, I looked into the location of his touches because I think that's the main thing that people have been saying, that he's getting his touches a, a hell of a lot deeper. And there are occasions where that is the case because of Trent cutting inside. But I don't think hugely there's a massive difference in the location of his touches. But this season, one thing that I've noticed and the numbers show it is that because of Trent's change in role where he's sort of earlier on in the attacking sequence, he's obviously getting the ball deeper. He's not the one to play the final ball. From that right-hand side, Salah is therefore the one to play that final ball mm-hmm. and be the creator rather than necessarily the attacker. So looking at his creative numbers, his chances in open plays as, as a consequence, his expected assists are the highest that they've been since 2018-19 per 90. And his shots and his touches in the opposition box are the lowest they've been in that period okay. as well. So it's it's more just that there's, which speaks to the podcast episode, that there's an evolution in his role a little bit. Whether or not that is kind of the best decision for him, because we know how much he really likes to be on the end of, of attacking sequences, is another question. But there's definitely been more of a, a move towards having more of a creative role than, than necessarily a finishing role, should we say. I find the aspect of clicking really important interesting here because there was a period where a lot of the current Liverpool attackers had joined the club and they were being used often in different roles and I think a lot of the narrative would have been Klopp needs to work out who's best where and and find the alchemy (laughs) that Mane, Firmino and Salah had. Um, Has that been the outcome or have they achieved an ability to play as a unit together in various different positions and still maintain the level of unit attacking output? Or has he finally found round pegs in round holes? No, I think it's more the fluidity. Uh, As Liam mentioned before, I think the fact that they can all play in in different roles has been to their benefit. And it is maybe reverse engineering it because while things are going well, you think it's fluid. And then while that same thing happens and they're not doing so well, you think it's okay because they don't know their roles. I, I think you put very very good if not world-class players in a front line they'll often score a lot of goals I think the main thing for Liverpool this season compared to last season where it was largely the same personnel I know that Gakpo came in in the the winter but their press is so much better from the front and that they are able to stop 
the opposition from building out and there's so much less pressure on the on the back line as a consequence and they're far more coordinated in that and I wonder whether well I'm sure it has been something that Liverpool worked on in pre-season making sure that as a unit you know when to go because as the guys mentioned before Mane, Firmino and all three of them in the first iteration were so good out of possession and that's where Liverpool sort of faltered a little bit more last season in this new iteration of the front line and you know as I say once you're in possession the, the rest will work itself out. Yeah, the front three now is can be ridiculously quick. If you think of Nunez uh, and Diaz in particular being able to, to press defenders, again, it's a small detail, but having someone that can cover ground half a second to even a second quicker isn't always that visible to see on the pitch, but makes a difference when you are really, really trying to press that way. And, and it's something I think we need to factor in that Klopp sort of spoken about. He spoke about it relating to Newcastle, actually specifically of having a really settled eleven, and then the difficulty of players that aren't playing regularly trying to come in when you do get injuries and you are forced to rotate because of European competition, then not having the match fitness or the sharpness or just looking a bit incoherent almost sounds a bit disrespectful, but you know, not having those established relationships all the time of knowing who they're playing with, but being able to chop and change things means players are more settled. You've got better sort of established relationships when you can be flexible because this is a Liverpool team that have played pretty much every single game possible for probably the last two or three seasons that Klopp often says they don't really coach things on the training ground anymore. They might get one or two sessions maximum a week. It's play, recover, play again. So having that talent where you don't need to go, I need to coach this third, fourth way to press or this different way to attack. I can just go switch my wingers at half time and that can be enough. And Michael, it is some unit, isn't it? Because Darwin Nunez's and Mohamed Salah's underlying numbers when it comes to getting chances are elite Outside of that, where some teams drop off completely to their second, third, fourth goal-scoring options, Gakpo, Jota, Luis Diaz, whenever they're on the pitch as well, they're all goal threats. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting how Klopp likes to use his forwards or his strikers. Because when you think about when Divock Origi started, which wasn't too much because he was usually a super sub, but he was a, a proper number nine. But when he did start, he usually played from the left mm. and Mane went inside to play the, the Firmino role. And when you look at what's happened with Nunes and Gakpo, Gakpo was generally cast as a winger or versatile forward before he came to Liverpool. I don't think he's played wide once this year. I think he's almost always played uh, as the number nine or the, the false number nine. And it's kind of been in reverse for Nunes. I mean, he's played through the middle sometimes, but I think he's actually more effective out wide. And actually, things went a bit further because in the first two games of the season, maybe after that, but certainly the first two, Gakpo actually played more as a number eight mm-hmm. in a 4-3-3. And I thought that was quite interesting as well. I thought to a certain extent that was Klopp trying to build something different, not just say this is the template of what used to be. There was a Firmino role, there was a Mane role. Let's try and do something different because they hadn't usually played with a player, a number eight like Gakpo. That's quite different. So yeah, I mean, I don't think they found the right solution or the right balance, but it is kind of working. I mean, Jota's a funny player as well. He almost never looks great. He's a bit scrappy. He's a bit of a trier, but he, he really gets the job done. He scores some very important goals. So yeah, I, I'm not sure they're going to find the right balance between now and the end of the season. I think they're going to mix and match and make do, but it's that's kind of working But that's fine, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of working. I think better than okay. I think there's maybe a hyper-focus now on teams having a really clear style to play and almost like this level that they need to hit every time of saying it needs to look how it used to three, four years ago um, because that's how we won a league doing it and that's that's how we liked playing and it was really good and effective. But you look at a vast majority of that squad have either left, aren't there anymore, 
or have gotten older and the game around them has changed. So you look at, I maybe not like the average side in the Premier League, but the sheer amount of possession football that now gets played, the sheer amount of pressing that now occurs and you go, well, if you try and play exactly the same way in a different, slightly different league um, with quite a few different players, you're kind of like, what's the point in you doing it? You're trying to fulfil something that doesn't really fit the people that you've got now. Um, and I think it's maybe a bit more tournament football style to say they're just about good enough in every game. Um, and without... You know, it's almost in a, a critique of them that oh, they don't like they get out of second or third gear in games, but they're really, really good and flexible and adaptable. And I think now that's one of the biggest chances they can have. And I think people really underrate that in an era where you don't get a lot of time to, to train and, and coach things. Newcastle are a great example of that, of having a really good plan A. Tottenham maybe a little bit this season as well, even though they're early into the process. Liverpool will now go under, admittedly, from a better starting point um, of trying to instill a, a new style. But you need to be able to not just go one up in games, but to respond when you do go behind or to see out games. Because um, I think the overall quality in the league has definitely gone up. And that's been the case with Liverpool in terms of getting back into games or not being able to break down a team in the early stages. That versatility across the front line to come up with different solutions depending on what's going on within the game, which is testament to, to Klopp and his coaching staff, but also the players to rotate and find different spaces and maximise the, the areas that maybe need to, to be done. I mean, Liam mentioned the, the Bournemouth game where there was the rotation, but it happened in the Arsenal FA Cup game as well, where Nunes, I think, started down the middle. And then in the second half, they, they needed to change something. And Nunes was on the left and it became far more direct of just making sure you just use his pace. And he was just his destructive self. And he kind of brought Liverpool up the pitch and they kind of built from mm -hmm. there and got a bit more of a foothold in the game so that... You don't even need to make substitutions sometimes with the way that Liverpool's versatility is that it's okay, well, this is the game that we need to play in, in the second half now, or we need to be better out of possession with this player, or Gakpo needs to tuck in a little bit more, whatever it may be. That's another strength to, to Liverpool, which in the same way wasn't, it, for all the Liverpool were good in the first iteration, wasn't quite the same in terms of having a plan B within the personnel. They're really not great starters this season. I've just had a look at the numbers and they've scored two and conceded three in the first 15 minutes. Overall, they've got 19 first-half goals and conceded 11. And they've scored 20 in the final 15 minutes of games, which is more than anyone else this season, more than anyone else last season. Um, and people often, I think, overlook that. And sure, it's not always a sustainable thing to do because you can say, oh, well, you're just scoring late on. That's not how you plan to win a game. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. But that shows the quality you've got in your depth of the academy players that come through and can contribute late on um, and the, the skill and the individual quality that you've got then to, to have an impact. Well, that's particularly interesting, the point you made earlier about... Klopp's Liverpool 1.0 and how often they were ahead at half-time and saw mm. games out from that position. Mm. That is a very clear difference between mm. this team and uh, that team. In midfield, compared to the 2019-21 to 21 batch that we mentioned earlier, what does this new mix of central midfielders add up to? A lot of new faces and names added over the last 18 months, two years. What sort of spaces do they occupy and have they refound that alchemy? I think maybe, and then maybe lost it a bit now that um, <laughs> you know they've, they've had players go go to continental tournaments. I think this is probably the one area you can be maybe hypercritical of them for in terms of their their squad building hasn't been excellent. I mean, they've sort of refit Alexis McAllister, I think, really well actually into a sort of a, a single pivot role where you know signed for Brighton as a number ten, played in sort of a double pivot. Um, it's great. It's really aggressive. A, a big hassler. I uh, made a load of tackles against Bournemouth. It was something like the most bunny Liverpool player for for quite a number of years. But he's also, he can be a little bit wild and quite quite eager as a defensive player. And he's not really the sort of player that's going to shuffle and just screen at, mm. you know, not a Rodri type midfielder necessarily, not 
you know, managers now seem to want a big guy to to be that that number four. And I think maybe that's to do with uh, the overall they had in sort of the scouting department and the changes that they had there. But I like the balanced profiles they've got in midfield. Shrubbers is a great example now. It makes a lot of sort of these crashing runs between fullback and centre back to really sort of attack the space, which is good because if Salah's receiving, not always in those advanced spaces are in behind. You've still got the same, you know, penetration of that back line. Mm. It's just coming about in a different way. So again, it's finding different solutions. I think it's similar to speaking about the the forward line in the sense that McAllister can play defensive midfield. You've mentioned it, Liam, central midfield or attacking midfield. Ryan Gravenberch was in his Ajax days. Yes, a central midfielder, but he can play as a double pivot, as a defensive midfielder. Curtis Jones it was a, a number 10 winger in the academy days. He was trialled as a defensive midfielder in uh, pre-season. I think he did it in the England mm-hmm. um, international setup as well, which obviously England won. The, you've kind of got a, the ability to to rotate uh, across there. So obviously I could arguably play in the forward line as well. Harvey Elliott could as, as well. So that could maybe come with its, its caveats as well, because Liverpool still are quite vulnerable in in transition because that's their game but I think Wataru Endo has he was just getting into some really good form before he went away um, with Japan to the Asia Cup so it'll be interesting to see how Liverpool respond and, and fit him back into the team when when he's back but I think the main thing in terms of the difference between this iteration and the last one is that they are because of what I said of having so many potential attacking players Michael mentioned Cody Kakpo playing as a as a number eight as well that they can contribute and chip in with with goals as well, which wasn't really the case with the first iteration. They'd chip in with the odd goal, maybe Milner taking penalties as well. But um, yeah, Curtis Jones has scored five goals in all competitions this season. Dominic Soboslai, five. Ryan Gravenberch, three, which granted aren't the huge numbers, not into double figures, but they are just contributing mm-hmm. more and more and ghosting into the box and um, getting on that attacking line, as, as Liam mentioned. So that would be the main difference for me in terms of the, the first and last iteration. They're, be- they're better technically. This is, the, I think, it's the best technical midfield that Klopp has had at Liverpool. The one I don't really fancy, I've got to be honest, is Endo. Uh, Mark says he's improved. I think there was that game before Christmas against Palace where he was so bad that he got taken off and they put Joe Gomez in holding midfield role. So, I mean, sometimes Liverpool holding midfielders takes time. Mm. Fabinho famously started very close, uh, very slowly, and it'll be used. I'm sure it'll be useful here and there, but. I'd be surprised if he's a real first team regular in the title winning season. I could be wrong. but It feels like maybe the importance of the performance of one individual or two individuals or three perhaps is is less than it was in the, the, that previous team. A bit like what we talked about with the forward line. It just feels like you're talking about more players mm-hmm. here contributing to Liverpool's midfield this season and somehow it all coming together and working out fairly well. Are you comfortable with that? that aspect of it not being a tight, consistent unit that you re- you know who's going to be there, you know what they'll do and it, and it's dependable. You're happy with a, a wider number of players and, and just sort of making it work? Yeah, again, it's maybe reverse engineering the narrative that if they do start to have a bit of poor form and you think, okay, you need to have a bit of a settled side. So maybe difficult to, to truly answer that one. I, I mean, I, I do take Michael's point about the Endo example is that he did start off really quite poorly. It seemed like he wasn't up to speed at all. And I might have mentioned it on this podcast. It felt like he was almost playing midfield by numbers where it was like, okay, look up, control the ball, look up again, try and pass the ball. And it felt very, very like stilted and, and slow. But it was just the final few weeks he started to really crash into some tackles, reading it really well, pressing really well despite some some poor performances in the Europa League as, as well as the Premier League. So 
to go to, back to that point, Liverpool do need that settled defensive midfielder. I think that's where I'd prefer that to be the case. The number eights, I think there's rotation and different needs for the, for the different games. But I think if they can really solidify a defensive midfielder, that will, that will be the solid base. I think we maybe overestimate how consistent Liverpool were, even at their you know, most consistent of results uh, under Klopp. There's a great stat that Duncan Alexander, a friend of the pod, often brings up that the 2019 team that started in that Champions League final is the only time that iconic Liverpool team has started together. So that's Alisson, Alexander-Arnold, Matip, Van Dijk, Robertson, then a midfield three of Henderson, Fabinho and Wijnaldum and the iconic front three of Salah, Firmino and Mane. Um, you look at how they're sort of... The only time they took only to time, the field together. Um, so obviously never in a Premier League game, um, never before, never after that. Um, Wijnaldum started 37 of 38 Premier League games that season. Henderson started 30, Fabinho 28. So that's appearances played. Oxley chamberlain made 30 appearances, Milner 22, Naby Keita 18 uh, and Lana 15. So... A lot of those are appearances off the bench and chopping and changing throughout. But it's interesting, I think, how things sort of stick in their mind. And it makes sense because there's big games and no one's going to remember 38 games plus of a season four years ago. Well, Mark Carey might need to test him. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it's clearly a feature that's still true for them now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Trent Alexander-Arnold always feels like the biggest part of Liverpool discourse or has done over the last year or two. And we've waited till this point in the pod to really zoom in on, on Trent's change in his in-possession role and responsibility. Michael, it is, are we at the point now where there's enough evidence, enough data, enough games to look back at to say that, that this move, that Trent's coming inside much more than he ever did before, has been a, a successful ploy to help evolve this Liverpool team? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's funny that it's happened at the time where, like I say, I think the, the midfield otherwise is more technical than it's been before. Mm. I think in a way it would have made a bit more sense when they had Milner or Oxlade-Chamberlain in there, you know. Right, when they had less, like, obvious on-ball creativity, yeah, I guess. exactly. Interesting. I quite like Oxlade-Chamberlain, but he he's never going to thread a pass through the, the defence like Alexander-Arnold can. But no, it's worked very well. I mean, they've got the right side of centre-back to play. I think mm. that's a really important part of it. And it's not fixed. There's been some games where they've played against a deep defence. You know, uh, Alexandra has been tracked in field or been marked closely in, you know, by a central midfielder. And then they've said, OK, we'll go out to the right and get some crosses in because he's still really good at that. I mean, it's interesting at the moment, Connor Bradley's come in and was excellent last night against Chelsea. I mean, brilliant goal, really good all-round performance. What I think is a bit of a shame in terms of tactical intrigue is that now Andy Robertson is back from injury mm. because I think I mean they haven't got anyone else who can play left back really I don't like Joe Gomez there I think he's really pedestrian on the ball 
if Alexander Arnold was just going to come inside into midfield, would they have played Bradley on the right and played Alexander Arnold on the left mm. and got him to come inside? Because I think if you're doing that, I don't think there's that much. I mean, there is a difference, but there's not that much difference between the the two sides. I mean, Rico Lewis made his England debut going from left back to central midfield, having not done that for City. Mm. But because he went from right back to central midfield with City, he was pretty accustomed to doing it. I'd love to see what Alexander Arnold would be from the left, like cutting inside. Would he shoot more? I don't know. But I would love to see it. No offence to Andy Robertson, but if he can just get a couple of, like, like a minor injury and miss a couple of games so we can see this. <laughs> just come back for like six months out with a major injury. Yeah, you know, sometimes, someone you, kick him as sometimes well. you get a hamstring strain or something, you know. <laughs> I'd be fascinated to see it. I think it'd be great. And finally, we get in-depth with Virgil van Dijk, plus one at the back, and Alisson in nets, who, spanning both eras, have been absolutely crucial to the way that Liverpool play and to their success. But what in particular, Liam, about the roles that Klopp has them doing and their suitability for it has been so important? Well, Van Dijk's just a, a colossal centre-back. He's huge, <laughs> he eats up space out wide. Um, passing ranges is phenomenal. You see this internationally as well for his country where Louis van Gaal stuck him in a back three and was like, not really my preferred choice and still really thrived in it. So he's, he's excellent. And you saw, I'm not going to tie it completely to that, Season where Liverpool dropped off a bit, but he did miss a big chunk and he then became really hard to replace and their, their defence suffered because of it. Alisson is is a phenomenal all-rounded goalkeeper, I think particularly 1v1s. There's always great data from from John Harrison, one of the fantastic goalkeeper guys on Twitter, puts out some, some great stats on 1v1 specific stats. I don't have them to hand, but often you'll see his tables and Alisson is always way out at the top of them. And I think particularly in the title winning season, had a massive overperformance. Makes and executes really good decisions. And I think his distribution's great as well, obviously. He's famed for the goal he scored at West Brom, but particularly his ability to, to claim corners or free kicks and then send these launching balls up to, to Salah or for the forwards to, to run in behind the winning goal against City, I think of, um, at Anfield, where he set Salah through and he, he scored 1v1. Small details, but you know, that's just where you see the real, real excellence there. I think the trait that ties both of them together and kind of encapsulates what we've spoken about with the, the Liverpool 1.0 is their ability to allow Liverpool to play a really high line. And that will allow the forwards to, to press really aggressively, the midfield to, to jump up and for Virgil van Dijk to basically stand alongside either a Joel Matip or a Joe Gomez on the halfway line and dare the opposition forwards to try and beat them in a foot race if they do play it over the top. And even if they do then play over the top, Alisson is so quick off his off his line in a 1v1, to, to Liam's point, but off his line and out of his box in general in his sweeper-keeper actions that you'll see on FB Ref, that you'll see that Alisson has consistently been among the, the top three, top five. For all that you could think, think about Alisson's goalkeeping metrics as well, their ability to actually allow Liverpool to play the way that Klopp wants them to play, I think has been, has been key. So it feels like in breaking down what the current team is like and in looking at some of the standout statistics from this season that actually it's Liverpool's ability to adapt within games that is causing so many problems for their opposition. They are not so good at nil-nil as Klopp's Liverpool 1.0. But when it comes to scoring late goals, coming from behind at times as well, there's obviously a lot to be said for the amount of rotation that Klopp is able to do within games and game to game and the adaptations within game that probably define this team more so than the the Liverpool team from the previous era. I mean, Michael, if, if you look at it like that, how strong do you think this Liverpool team is compared to 1.0 Klopp's Liverpool, given that they do feel and look quite different in some ways? 
Yeah, I mean, they were fantastic last night against Chelsea. That was one of the best performances I've seen them play for a long time. But overall, I haven't been that convinced by them. I know the top of the league, I don't think they're quite close to where they were really when they were at Klopp's peak. And they still feel to me a little bit like they're in between, you know, two areas of great teams. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite interesting because there's certain managers who when they leave, they just leave a bit of a, I mean... When Ferguson left Manchester United, that was not a good squad to be taken over. And I didn't think he was really thinking at all about progression or what was going to come next, you know, buying Van Persie, for example. Whereas when you look at what Klopp has done, he's brought through a lot of young players through the season. He's just given them some minutes. Some players who played in the Premier League this year, Connor Bradley, Bobby Clark, Ben Doak, Owen Beck, James McConnell, Kylie uh, Gordon. I think he is not just with that, but also with the players that have been brought in. I do think that there's a, a really good squad for someone to inherit. And Elliot and, and Jones as well. Even yeah, for so. sure. I think yeah. Liverpool will be better next season or season after than they are this year. It might still win the league this year. But I think there's... I mean, when you look at the, the average age, you know, there's not that many players who won't be around in two years' time or who won't be better in two years' time. So... Yeah, I think they're going to come again. I think they'll be really good in two years. Obviously, it depends who the manager is. <laughs> I was about to say, are you, are you just ignoring the fact in, that there may be... Some... But that's a good squad to take over, Yeah, I yeah. think. It's really talented, versatile. Yeah, I think that's quite an exciting proposition. I think it's the best time and way for him to walk out on his own terms. We see a lot, and we've spoken about management in you know multiple episodes. People should go back and listen to it. And a big thing we've said there is that it's often a shame where someone has a really good legacy and that gets a bit tarnished by staying longer than the peak and then ending up getting sacked or it sort of all ending up in, in flames. Um, I think Wenger's a, a great example of that. Um, Very similar as an aside to my theory on nights out, where <laughs> if possible, you should always leave while you're still having a good time yeah. so that in the morning, there's no chance of remembering the sort of really shabby few hours post a certain time. Speaking of shabby hours. Struggle, uh, struggle to get home. That's with good. A, that a, is good, yeah. yeah. With the shabby Alonso uh, links. <laughs> you didn't get that at first. Okay. <laughs> so we were talking about this podcast and no, we've been a bit no, shabby. No, no. Just our nights out together. An hour yeah, of yeah. shabby chat. I'm gutted you had to Every repeat it so I they got it. it. Yeah. The, the ones that get it, get it. The, the ones that don't, don't. Um, there, I had a quick look at Liverpool's current points per game pace and what it's on for this season. Uh, it's going to come up to just over 88 if they stay as they are, which will be on the lower end of what we've seen in, in sort of recent seasons. But as, as Michael sort of uh, alluded to, I think there's other teams in the league that it's just not as competitive at the very top end. So City don't look quite as perfect as they have been. Chelsea and Manchester United definitely in sort of very iffy periods. Spurs look largely good, but are fading a bit in games and tailing off and Look, they appointed a new manager or, or head coach in the summer. So I think now is also a really good time where you go, it's not as impossible or perfect as you need to be to sort of win it in recent seasons. Liverpool were excellent for two years and came second with really high points tallies. Realistically, they could bring in a new coach now and account for the fact that you can have a bit of issues with teething problems and bringing in a new coach and, as we say now, bleeding in these new players. Um, and you could still get... 80-25 points and be top two or top three. Less important now with the Champions League places and more being allocated, but principally where you want to finish. Yeah. It's very doable. So Mark, quite a lot to work with for the next manager, even if Liverpool aren't hugely active in the transfer market this summer, which makes a bit of a change from the last few summers. Yeah, which speaks to the, the guy's point that Klopp is leaving on a high for himself, but leaving Liverpool in such a a good position and you know Michael mentioned the the academy players I think Liverpool have in all competitions have played seven teenagers this season which again thinking about the the future they've got some really good players out on loan as well to maybe come back that they've got really good options 30 players in total in all competitions that they've played and I think 
the way that this season has gone for Klopp as well has helped in terms of having some favourable cup uh, draws and the Europa League to allow them to to blood more players and, and get a bit of rhythm and things like that. But yeah, whoever comes in doesn't necessarily need to buy. In terms of that sort of consistency as well, uh, speaking about Xabi Alonso potentially, but I think it would be a shame not to have a conversation with Pep Linders, who's Liverpool's mm. current assistant coach and has had spells as a manager with NEC Nijmegen uh, a few seasons ago in the Eredivisie, but that didn't work out quite so well. But more akin to the Liverpool boot room style, it would be quite good to have that continued sort of transition from one manager to another who really understands the club, understands the exact cohort of players that I think they'd be foolish not to to try and actually maybe entice him back if the current news is that he's he's going to go along with, with Klopp and the other staff. Xabi Alonso, Pep Linders, uh, Ryan O'Hanlon made an interesting case for Thomas Frank, potentially being a good option for Liverpool as well. Uh, Michael, any thoughts on where they should turn next? What sort of manager profile? I actually really like Xabi Alonso as an option. Okay, there's there's an argument that it's a, a difficult uh, manager to follow. Maybe you don't want to use it up too early, but I actually think the style of football that he plays and the squad Liverpool have got would work really well. So I'd be tempted to go for him early because others will be looking to pounce. Thank you, guys. A really interesting podcast in light of the news that Jurgen Klopp will leave Liverpool at the end of the season. But as we speak, they are the Premier League leaders and the next few months are going to be very interesting indeed. Thank you to Liam, to Mark and Michael as well for talking me through it and to you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed so you get next week's episode as soon as it drops. And subscribe to The Athletic as well, theathletic.com forward slash tactics. The best place to go for a discount on an annual subscription. You can read everything that these guys and their colleagues are writing on The Athletic site today. That's it from us. We'll be back again next week. Thanks very much and go well. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.